Hey, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, if you've got a Bible there that you want to turn or tap your way into. For those of you that are new, some of those new faces uh, that are here today, my name is Ryan Smith. I'm so excited to see you here today. I'm the teaching pastor here at Collective, which basically means that I get to spend uh, my, my life basically just pastoring and teaching. It's kind of a self-descriptive job title. Uh, my wife, Erin, and I have been married for 10 years. We've got two little ones, Arlo, who will be two in May, and then our little five-year-old, uh, Emma, who is going on 16. Uh, man, in, in our family here, like so many of us that are part of Collective, what our big hope is, what we're leaning into, is trying to follow Jesus here in Los Angeles, and even for us with kids, trying to help our kids do the same. But for those of you that have little ones, you know that that often comes with mixed results. A couple uh, while back on a Tuesday morning when Emma would have been about two or three years old, this morning where Aaron and I had gotten up and we're beginning to kind of wake up to the day, drinking coffee, you know, you get the music. Like this is back when we had one kid and not two. And uh, so the, the house was relatively kind of quiet. And so Emma was uh, playing in her room while we're getting ready and uh, we just kind of, it's quiet, which is normally a bad thing with a toddler. It means they're getting into something they shouldn't. And so we're like, what's, what is the world? So we go and we peek in and Emma is sitting on the floor in her room and she has her Jesus storybook Bible open. And she's like looking at it and we're like, it's working. <laughs> like, this is awesome. So we kind of like, you know, back out of the room, we go back to like, you know, breakfast and waking up and like, we'll just leave her in there and not, not even like three minutes go by. And we just hear, no snake. And so we come back in there, and, and she had ripped page three out of her Jesus storybook Bible. So, you know, the, the story, Adam and Eve, the serpent, she's like, nah, man, we don't need the snake. Ripped it out. In doing so, made the book much shorter. Like, if that would have been it, then, you know, the story would have been, uh, would have been done. I, w- I was thinking about that story of Emma re- ripping out kind of this part of her Bible uh, this week as I was thinking about our temptation to want to kind of act like Emma over the past seven weeks as we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. This book is not an exciting book. It's not really a great place to spend your time. And the more time that you spend here, you kind of want to just sit like Emma and no Ecclesiastes. And the reason why is the preacher, the, the primary speaker in the book, as we've been calling him, the deconstructor, he keeps tearing out, deconstructing so many of the places and ways that you look for meaning and purpose in your life. We look for pleasure. We look for honor from others, a, a life of wisdom, our career and our work or wealth or consumerism or justice. And, and he, time and again, keeps labeling all these things as vanity, The Hebrew word behind that being hevel, it's the word for smoke or a vapor or mere breath, something fleeting but also illusory. We've been kind of saying this as vanity is smoke and mirrors. It's it's right there in front of you and you think you can see it, but once you get there, it's it's gone. And, And even the whole point of you getting there feels disruptive and strange. We want to rip out this book because we, I really want a Bible that's like encouraging. I want one that celebrates my like work ambitions. It gives me this kind of you can do it, pep in my step, go out and face the day. The best is yet to come. Make something of yourself. I want that kind of a Bible. I want to believe that I actually can find satisfaction in my life, that significance is right around the corner, that I can be remembered, that I am special. But the deconstructor just goes, You've, you, you radically need to alter your expectations with life. 
But the point of the deconstructor is not like my toddler just to throw the page away, but rather to clear away all of these distractions, this smoke and mirrors, so that we can find what remains, something that is lasting, something that is significant, and something that is satisfying. Today we begin our final descent into the book of Ecclesiastes, our spring series, Smoke and Mirrors, Deconstructing Los Angeles with the book of Ecclesiastes. And today, as we're making that you know, final descent, the deconstructor is going to summarize all he said throughout the book so far, while also kind of setting a trajectory for uh, where do we go from here, a little bit of advice that he wants to give. Now, a word of warning, today we're going to be looking at three chapters of the book but we're going to get out of here before lunch, I promise you, okay? So what that means is, as we go through these three chapters, it's going to be kind of like those Hollywood, like, celebrity house bus tours. So you guys, we're all going to load up, and we're going to, like, go through the three chapters, and I'm going to, like, point at that. We might stop, and, like, that's Tom Cruise's house. Then we'll get back in and keep going. And you've got the map, because you've got the text. There might be a couple little houses that you want to stop at. What about that person? Like, sorry, we don't have time. Like, you can go back and check it out later. And that's where your discipleship group comes in. You guys can continue to wrestle with it, but all aboard, okay? Here we go. What we're going to do to get rolling, though, is I do, as we regularly stand, if you want to join me in standing, uh, we stand when we read from the scriptures as a way of identifying with our bodies, like raising our hands in worship or kneeling in prayer, that there's something really powerful and profound that happens when God's people gather around God's word. Amen? And so we're going to read from just the first 12 chapters today to kind of get the, the bus rolling. Okay? Did I say chapters? I'm so sorry. You guys are like, you said it would be short. Three verses, 12 verses. 12 verses, three chapters. Okay, so Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 9, verse 1. Uh, if you've got your Bibles there, if, if not, uh, you'll see it behind me on the screen. The deconstructor says, But all of this I laid to heart, all of life under the sun, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. But whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. The one who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same thing happens to everyone. Also the heart's of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living still has hope or confidence for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die but the dead don't know anything. They have no more reward for their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy, all of it has already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Because there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom. There's none of that in Sheol, the Hebrew word for the grave, to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, 
nor is the battle to the strong, nor bread goes to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to everyone. For a man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds caught up in a snare. So the children of man, so humans, are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for uh, your word. Thank you again for your people. Thank you for, uh, God, just everybody that you've brought together here, those that have been with Collective since day one and those for whom today is day one. Uh, God, for all of us in our range of experiences with you, some of us that have been dragged along and, and we want nothing to do with you, for those of us that are here and hungry to hear from you today, would you meet all of us at the depths of what we actually need? Speak now, we pray. You know, we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. For those looking how to live life under the sun, or as we could put it, life here in Los Angeles, we could summarize the three chapters we're looking at today and really the 12 verses we just read as death is certain, life is not. Now, this is a little bit of a connection to Benjamin Franklin, who, as many of you will know the quote, he said that there's really nothing certain in life except for death and taxes. He kind of leaves out tax fraud though. Like it's not certain for them, but I guess it does catch up to them sooner or later. Or maybe you don't know it from Benjamin Franklin. Maybe you catch uh, that this is um, an illusion, a reference that I didn't know I was making until I looked into it. The uh, 80s metal band from Downey, California, Dark Angel, they have a track on their Darkness Descends album called Death is Certain, Life is Not. Met- the Bible's metal. Uh, so what spooky album cover? It's Halloween. Um, so I, I said that to say, death is certain, life is not. So whether that sounds punk rock to you or just like some kind of cool historical thing, regardless, I think this is the best way to summarize what the deconstructor is getting at today. In this life, there, you, there's, no punk, there's no avoidance of it. Death catches up to all of us. And because of that, life is not certain. Life is all over the map. You have no expectation for what it is. And so whether you're a Christian or not, in order for us to live a life truly worth excuse me, living, we must make our peace with death's certainty and life's uncertainty. Uh, Because everything in us in the city that we live in wants to try to avoid that reality that death is certain and life is not. We want to believe that we can put off death. We want to believe that with the right amount of wisdom and power and strength, our lives can be quite certain and we can expect everything out of it. And the deconstructor goes, no, you need to face the certainty of death and the uncertainty of life. So look back with me at 9 verse 1. Where the deconstructor makes an interesting line. In 9 verse 1, it opens kind of happy. Because he goes, I laid this all to heart, examining how, what? The righteous and the wise are in the hand of God. That's like coffee cup stuff. Like you wake up every morning, you're like, mm, I'm the righteous and wise person. I'm in the hand of God. That means I'm safe and he holds me close, right? Like this sounds, but what does he say right after this? Whether for good or for bad, whether for love or hate, we really don't know. Why? Why does the deconstructor doubt whether being God's hand is good or for bad? Why? Everyone dies. Death comes for all. 
As he continues into verses four and six, he talks about how all are consumed by death and death consumes all, consumes everything. He goes, everything that you know and everyone that you know will be consumed by it. Every reward that you could have or you've made in life will be taken by death. Every memory, every love, every hate, every work, every possession, all death will take all of it. And that is why he's not quite sure that it's a good thing to be in the hand of God. There's no difference between the righteous and the fool. There's no difference between the wise and the fool or the righteous or the unrighteous. Everyone dies. So what do we do with that? He's calling for us to realize that death consumes all. And what's interesting is in 9 verse 11, if you'll jump down, he calls our attention to realize why death is certain is because he's got two henchmen. In verse 9 through 11, I, I just love this, that he says, chapter 9, verse 11, that, you know, he goes, the battle's not to the strong, the race is not to the swift, bread doesn't go to the wise, riches to the intelligent, favor to those who knowledge. Why don't the things that seem like they should go to those people end up with them? Time and chance come for them all. These are the two henchmen of death. If you want to picture like a, a good old like classic Western, you know, got the big bad, you know, the bad guy, he's got his two little cronies. Like the grim reaper, death is at work within the world and him getting you is certain. And who is going to catch you up and drag you off is time and chance. In verse uh, 12 of chapter nine, he begins to detail this even further, that death will come unexpectedly like a bird in a tree with a cat that pounces, like a fish in the sea that gets brought up in a net. Time and chance happen to everyone. They're going to leap on us unsuspecting and drag us away. And, and I don't know your experience over the past few years, but we have more than uh, enough seen the work of time and chance and the way that they drag us off to death. For some of you, you have family members where the, the, the time, the, 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 the clock within your body that, that entropy slowly wears down upon until you're, you stop breathing, until your heart stops. Time, sooner or later, every, like, sooner or later, you are going to die. Happy Sunday, welcome to church. It's good to see you all here. But there, there is a timer that you can't see that sooner or later will hit zero. And there's nothing you can do about that. But not just time. There's also the, the thing that even if that clock is ticking, there is also this, this factor of chance, of chaos behind all of it. The way that pandemics, the way that, that COVID-19 affected some people's bodies and other people's body, that some of it might be up to lifestyle, some of it was just up to chance. There's nothing you could do about it. So we have family members over this past, we have people within our church that have lost family members over this past year due to COVID. We have people that have lost in just the chance happenstance of being at the wrong place at the wrong time and family members that are taken. This is where the deconstructor is inviting us to think through this. What kind of a world do we live in here? One that death is certain and life is not. I remember when I was 11 years old, I came home from school and my mom sat me down. We had just moved from Omaha, Nebraska to uh, Southwest Missouri so I'm like starting to make new friends, but still kind of staying in touch with some of my friends uh, back up in Omaha. And I come home, my mom sits me down because uh, earlier that, that afternoon, uh, one of my friends from back in Omaha named Abe was out skateboarding and uh, fell off his skateboard and just fell back and hit his head in just the right way, wrong way, 11 years old. Time and chance happened to them all. There's just, there's, there's just something that, I mean, we watch YouTube videos every single day of people falling off skateboards. 
and it's and and they get back up and maybe they're hurt and maybe you know we, but and gone. This is the reality of the certainty and uncertainty of our lives. And so the deconstructor is calling for you to live with a real, realistic perspective on how this all works. That you are not the captain of your own ship. You are fish swimming in a bucket waiting to be ripped up. You are a bird whistling in the tree as the cat begins to pounce. Death is certain. One of my favorite, uh, I don't know if I would say my favorite, but one of my favorite movies is uh, No Country for Old Men, the Coen Brothers. Um, it's incredible cinematic uh, thought on, on precisely this passage. Uh, Javier Bardem's character, uh, Anton Chigurh, who is he's like death incarnate. And the whole story of the movie is, is following someone who, who thinks he gets lucky by chance, but ends up finding that death is fine. He cannot escape death. And even when he thinks he gets away from death, he, he ends up at the very end of the movie. How does it end? Not with what he thought was chasing him, getting him, but he just ends up being lost all the same. Death is chasing after all of us. And, and, and you can call it friendo, but sooner or later, you're going to land on the wrong side. And, and this is the thing for a church that's moderately, you know, looking around pretty young, looking at lots of young faces. I will say to those of you, I see some gray heads, we're very grateful to have your wisdom with us today. We're very grateful for you. But for some of us that are predominantly on the younger side, there is an, an illusion of certainty of life and that death is something far off in the distance. And the deconstructor wants to say, you're a fish in a barrel, you're a bird whistling in a tree while the cat waits nearby. Now this is a hard word that can lead us to be tempted to just move to just, just distraction. Okay, I'm just gonna play... I'm just going to play games. I'm going to go run off. I'm going to like just immerse myself in play. I'm just going to hide from the reality of this or avoid it. Or we, we try to just move into like depressive despair. And none of those are what the deconstructor would recommend. As we move back to chapter 9, verse 7, what does he recommend for us in light of the fact that everyone is going to die? And that means you and me. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Enjoy your existence. In verse eight, he talks about the clothes that you wear. In verse nine, he talks about the, the spouse. If, if, if you're married, I, I just love, I'm gonna start using this in like my wedding vows at the very end of my blessing. Nine, verse nine, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that's your portion in life and you're gonna die. Like what a happy, like, you know, you may now kiss the bride. <laughs> the whole point of all of these is what he's getting at is life is better than death. And so just because death is coming, don't let the certainty of death cut you off from the enjoyment of your existence of where you have life right now, right here. As he says in verse four, I love this line, that a living dog is better than a dead lion. Back in the day, you know, a modern translation of this would just be like a living raccoon is better than like a dead dog, I guess. Because now that the life of the dog is incredible and it's the raccoons that we see, like they would have seen dogs in the ancient world. So what's he saying is, man, you are better off having an okay or even sub than okay life than you having an incredible life but now being dead. So enjoy the existence that you have while you have it. But lest we begin to think that he's going back on all he said over the past nine chapters, this is not a call to blanket hedonism or just immersing yourself in pleasure. Because what did he say back in chapter two? Pleasure in itself provides no value. In chapter six, possessions and consumerism do not provide you with happiness. 
You need something greater, not just a foolishness of gluttony and drinking yourself until you die to hide yourself from the fact that you're going to. And the last thing that you need is retail therapy for this. You need a deeper enjoyment of your existence right now, right here, which in verse seven gives us the key to how to do just that. What does he say? For God has already approved what you do. That line of approved can be translated as God has already delighted in or has pleased himself in what you do, what your work, where you are. You see, God delights in his people delighting in their lives. As the creator, he is pleased by his people's pleasure. He is not, as we are so often prone to believe, some cosmic killjoy. But what separates a foolish hedonism from a deep enjoyment of our existence is precisely this, trusting that God is the gracious giver and source of the delight and pleasure of my life right here and right now. You see, if you don't have a trust for God, then then what you'll find yourselves doing is falling on one side or the other with your life. One is that you won't be able to enjoy your life because you will trust all of the things of your life, not as a, a gift, but as the source of your enjoyment in life. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear, whether or not you are married, the work that you work in, without receiving that as a gift and trusting God and receiving them, you will see those as an end to themselves and they cannot give that for you. Similarly, you cannot enjoy your life when you distrust that those have been given to you by God. And so you're constantly looking for the next season or the next meal or something greater or something better. You can't wait until you're out of the season of singleness. Then you're married and you can't wait and you're like, now you miss the season of singleness. Or you can't wait for the season of children. You can't wait for the season of being an empty nester. You can't wait for the season. When you constantly are living a life of something is always better on the other side, it's the grass is always greener. But when you have the ability, the posture of going, I mean, I love that word right there. For God has already approved. Present, right now, right here. The place of God's delight and pleasure and enjoyment for your life is not a past tense or a future tense. It's an already right here, right now. And so what that means is the place for you to find enjoyment of your existence in the midst of the certainty of death is in the food that you're eating, the drink that you're drinking, the clothes that you're wearing, the relationship status that you presently have. That is the very place where God wants to say that it is good and for you to find enjoyment in that. The deconstructor would say, stop wasting your life wishing for another one when waiting for another one. You have no evident proof that you're going to ever find anything close to that. Stop wasting your, your, your life waiting to get married. You might die before you ever have the opportunity. Stop wasting your life waiting for some promote. Once I get to that job place, then I'm gonna be that level of, of, of people seeing me and honoring me or that whatever it might be for you. Stop waiting for the enjoyment of life to come from those things because death is certain. You'll never get there. You may never get there. So God is not a cosmic killjoy, but he's calling for us to find this already delight in our lives, whether that is cup of noodles over the sink or the focaccia bread at Etta in Culver City. <laughs> whether that is tiki drinks on the beach or screaming toddlers, wherever you are, whatever season of life you're in, the place of the delight and the enjoyment of your existence is an already statement. So enjoy it while you have it. Trust God with it. 
As he continues, we find that the death is certain because of time and chance, his little henchmen. But even more, time and chance are not just what make death certain. Time and chance are what make life uncertain. As you move into the back end of chapter 9 and then into really all of chapter 10, you kind of, if you look over in your Bibles, it's kind of this collection of little proverbs and parables all about uh, how, to, to quote from a couple weeks ago, that wisdom is broken because of time and chance. Look with me in chapter 9, verse 13 and 18, where he tells the story of an old man. He goes, there's this city that all of these, you know, big bad guys came against it. They besieged it. But this one, you know, man, this came up and he used his wisdom and he won the day. Everybody, you saved the city, yay! And then what? Just wait for the clock to go a couple times around. Nobody remembers him anymore. He was at the high, there was a parade in his name. Everybody was celebrating him and just, just move the calendar forward a couple, a little bit further and gone. All the wisdom that you can live with, you can, you can, you can win the city and lose it all. I've been losing, uh, reading with a handful of my buddies uh, from here in Collective, this book called The Mirage Factory. It's a history of Los Angeles, looking at three main characters that kind of built the city. And, and one of them was D.W. Griffith, who was a big silent film director. He built uh, Hollywood, it was based off of his films and all these, these old silent movies let alone that the big one was Birth of a Nation, which is responsible for the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War, but that's a, that's a topic for another day. D.W. Griffith, what was so profound was here you have this guy that he was at the height of every, he built Hollywood. He was royalty in Hollywood. And you begin now with the ability to look back on history. You see what happens when you live your life within a particular time is that time doesn't stop. It waits for no one. And there's this quote, somebody was interviewing him and he said, there will never be talking pictures. And what, within a few years, the technology got good enough, it picked up and that's all anybody wanted was what was called talkies back in the day. And, and, and this guy who had built his whole career learning how to do silent film couldn't make the jump to talkies. He couldn't get, he tried and tried again and he just couldn't get the fame and the success that he had. He ended up drinking himself to death. Time waits for no one. And you might be the star of the city one day, but time waits for no one. You might be forgotten or the technology might change, but your wisdom and your smarts, your brilliance are no match for time. In chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, I love this little uh, Bible nerd with me for a moment. It's called a chiasm, where he develops this little fun poem about how uh, chance breaks wisdom. So he did time, now he's doing chance breaks wisdom. And so at the beginning of the poem, he talks about how a foolish person gets bit by a snake. And then at the end of the poem, he talks about how the wise person gets bit by a snake. And then in the middle, he talks about the wise person gets hurt by their axe. And then right after that, he talks about how the foolish person gets hurt by an axe. So the main point of the story is if there's a snake or an axe involved, it's going to go poorly. But the whole point of what he does within these little dynamics here is he identifies that, you know, some guy's trying to break into a house and, you know, lodged within the wall is a snake. So he's doing a foolish thing and he gets bit by a snake, right? And then he, he dies because of the snake bite. But then at the very end, you have someone who he's trying to do the right, he's trying to be a snake charmer. He's trying to be wise and brilliant with the snake. But guess what happens when you try to charm a snake? You might get bit. Foolish and the person that was being wise. They both die from the same thing. Similarly, the uh, wise guy, he sharpens his ax to make his job easy. But what happens when the, the sharper that ax is, the more dangerous it is. And then vice versa, the foolish person, they don't sharpen their ax 
And then they're, they're exhausted. They completely tire themselves out. They, the exhaustion word there is, is a far more heavy than just like, oh, I'm tired. It's like deep exhaustion uh, to the point of death because of this. So the whole point, though, of this little chiasm is chance breaks wisdom, too. You can do the right thing and have the same results as the foolish person. You can, you can, like, this is, I mean, just think about the uh, financial crash from back in 2008, is you have all these people, the wise and the foolish part, no matter how well you, you manage your resources, wise or foolish, and you, the people that lost businesses, regardless on whatever side they were on, lost savings on whatever side they were in, investments on whatever side, you can't control chance. Similarly, with uh, the Mirage Factory, the second person that they looked at was Robert Mulholland. He was the engineer who built the city of Los Angeles, routing water from all of these different lakes to basically feed the city that we could not exist without all of this water. So Mulholland was seen as this hero of Los Angeles. Like this, he is the god who made this garden city in the middle of a desert. And so he built up, working within... Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, building all of these, I mean, everything that we have is, is in this city is infrastructure built by him over 100 years ago. And yet around 1928, one of the uh, holding places for the water as it made its way into the city was the St. Uh, Francis Dam. It's this huge dam, one of the second largest of its time, only to later be outdone by the Hoover Dam. I mean, it was this enormous dam that they built. And everything that he had used, all the same projects and people and resources and all the previous dams and aqueducts, by all counts, it should have been fine. But there was something just off in the soil deep below the dam that there's no way they could have ever tested and found for. And on one night, the entire dam fell apart and swept all of this water through killing just under 500 people, second largest uh, kind of natural disaster, man-made natural disaster in Californian history, just behind the San Francisco fire in 1908. 500 people with bodies and, and corpses being found all the way down to the Mexico border. When he was brought before a council to kind of stand for whether or not he was responsible for what happened, this act of chance, he stood weeping and said, I envy the dead just mirroring the book of Ecclesiastes. He ended up living the rest of his life as a recluse, dying alone. Both of these heroes of the city of Los Angeles and time and chance happened to them all. See, life is not certain the deconstructor sets before us. Wisdom is broken. But, but again, what the deconstructor softens his blow here is like he said uh, two weeks ago, he says in uh, 10 verse 10 that, that wisdom still is better than no wisdom at all. Because there is a way that it's not perfect, doesn't work always, but being wise and thinking through things and being smart can delay. It can mitigate chaos and time. It can stall them a little bit. Some examples that he gives are in 10, chapter 4. He says that uh, calmness can lay great offenses to rest. The idea being that if you have a calm demeanor, you will protect yourself from time and chance and from your life, from the uncertainty of life by having a calm demeanor. You will not rush on stage to slap one, someone and ruin your entire life career. In 10.12, he says the wise words find favor. Or in 10.20, he says, don't curse others lest they kill you, or we could say slap you. So on whatever side of the story from last Sunday night you want to watch, the deconstructor would go, you know, wisdom would have helped this whole situation out a lot. 
Now, here's the thing, though, that rather than just being paralyzed by the uncertainty of death, what these kind of little things show us is the deconstructor is calling for us to live with, and as he continues into chapter 11, to work with wisdom. If you look at uh, chapter 11, verse 1, it's such a weird verse. It says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. There's these, like, uh, gospel singers, the Gaither Brothers, and they have this whole, my wife's from North Carolina, so we just, we like eat this stuff up. So the Gaither brothers had this song. They, they take 11-1 out, cast your bread on the waters. And for them, it's kind of this like pay it forward, like generosity thing. But when you translate from the Hebrew, cast your bread on the waters is, is, is literally ship your merchandise overseas or ship your grain overseas, excuse me. Send your grain on, along the waters. And so the idea of what he's getting at here, the deconstructor is calling for wise investment because of life's uncertainty. Hey, don't send all of, your, all of your grain just with like one guy. There might be a flood. There might be an earthquake. There might be robbers. Split it up. Move the share around. That way, if something happens to one of them, you've still got the rest of them ready to go. And hey, maybe nothing will happen, and then you're great. This is exactly what he says in the following verse in chapter 11, verse 2. He says, send your portion or your merchandise with uh, multiple people. So if something happens to them, you might win it back. Maybe one of them you don't get it from, but at least you've got there everybody else, right? So this is a really simple, he said, hey, life is uncertain. Financial planning is probably smart at some level, right? Like think through a budget, savings at some level. Like he's talked about the silliness of like hoarding wealth, but here he kind of, he goes, there is something to be said for wise, you know, just in case something happens, thinking these things through. So there's a tension to be held for sure. But, I mean, you could take this and, and move this kind of call to wisdom to extend to physical health, relational wisdom, parenting, your vocation, your career. There is a life that is better. Thinking through the uncertainty of life, planning for the worst, and, and instead of just moving foolishly through life and thinking that everything's going to go great. But he says in 11.3, because he is the deconstructor, but what will happen will happen. So, you know, you can be all smart, but at the end of the day, you know, you might send eight guys with your portion, but all eight might get eaten by, you know, a lion or whatever. He's like, you just, you just don't know. What happens, what happens? So what he says is you should keep an eye on what's in your control rather than what's out of it. Keep your attention on what's within your reach and within your grasp, within your control, rather than the things that aren't. In 11.4, he talks about this little story of this farmer who's sitting out in the field and he's just waiting for like the perfect moment to get started. And he, like, he, he wakes up in the morning, he's got the shovel and all this stuff. It's too windy. It'll blow the seeds away. And so he goes back inside and waits another day. Comes back out the other day and now, you know, it's raining. Or maybe the perfect day finally comes and now it's time to harvest. And he's like, ah, it looks like it might rain today. It's a little cloudy. I don't want to get the harvest wet. So he's just, it's this, this farmer who instead of getting to work is always waiting for the perfect circumstances. He's always waiting for things to be perfect. Waiting for no wind to blow away the seed, no rain to ruin the harvest. And so again, just bringing this into the modern time, this is, this is the person who jumps from job to job, the person who jumps from city to city, from relationship to relationship, from church community to church community, from circumstance. They're always waiting and looking, hungering for some kind of perfect Edenic little place where you're just gonna walk in and work is gonna be great and you're gonna love everybody that you work with. You're gonna be paid right and make an impact on the world. This church community, everybody walks in and they care about you and you immediately have this perfect relationship. They're, they're dating and getting, and nobody is ever like, just it's not immediately like, you know, fire sparks. So they're just waiting for perfection and the deconstructor's whole point is life is uncertain. There may be perfect, they, they probably don't exist 
But you waiting, life is uncertain. What are you waiting for? And so, I mean, this is, I, I've done like counseling appointments with, you know, some people that are like, they're just waiting for whether this is like, you know, someone who's, who's wanting to step into like relationships and dating, but they're just like waiting for like the, the friendship to basically lead up to the point where they're just ready to get on a knee and propose. They're just like, yeah, I'm just kind of like hanging out at a distance and like seeing what's there. And like, you know, it's like you, you, you're like, you're just waiting for like, you guys are going to be like at the beach together. And you're like, now's the time. Like you just get down. I'm like, ask, it's coffee, it's not a proposal. Like jump out, get to know people, ask these questions. Similarly, people waiting on the sidelines to jump into church community or, or some new season or some work or possibly just staying where you're at more often than not is what this feels like. Is we have this, the grass is greener over their perspective on our relationships, on our work, on our season of life. And, and if, if maybe if we went over there, then things would be perfect. Then my relationships would be easier. Then, then, then I would find the person that I'm going to marry. My job would be great if I worked over there. The deconstructor's like, man, you have no promise of anything. Attention here, right here, right now, this is the place where God's delight is to be found. And so put your attention here. As he ends in 11, 5, and 6. So he says, work wisely and, and, and work hard as you trust in God. And then he tells the kind of story of you don't know. You live within a mystery of how God works. In the same way that, that you can't name the moment that like what happens within, you know, babies. He talks about, you know, the, you, you have this whole thing of like mommy and daddy and then like zygotes and all this kind of stuff happens. But that becomes not just like another little alien human thing. It becomes a human being with a soul and a spirit and, and an imagination. Like you don't know how that happens. In the same way, you have no ability to have certainty over how your life works. So you need to trust in God in the midst of working wisely because you don't know how this is going to go. So the deconstructor says, wisdom is better, though results may vary. So plan and prepare for things not to work out. Because death is certain and life is not. So you enjoy your existence, work wisely, and trust God. Now, here's the, here's the poll. This is really good advice. Advice that you would be very wise to receive. But it's not enough. It's not satisfying counsel. Why is this? Because repeatedly in the passage, the deconstructor has called the presence of death and his henchmen time and chance, not just as an unfortunate reality, as evil. So yes, enjoy your existence and work wisely, but you know that last one, trusting God, can I really trust God in a world with time, chance, and death? As he opened and closed our passage in, in chapter 9, verse 1, and 11, verse 5, we don't know how God works. And everybody dies. So how can I trust in a God where this is the kind of world that I find myself in? For many of us, this is one of the primary sources of doubt in the midst of our faith. For some of you, this is precisely what keeps you from faith. Why did God let that happen? Why are time, chance, and death in God's world? Why are death and car accidents and cancer? Why is this here? Yeah, enjoy existence. Yeah, work wisely. But trust God in this kind of situation, in this kind of world. I, you know, I don't know. Have you wrestled? You will. And the deconstructor, this is the thing, man. It seems like in these three chapters, it seems all he can do is shrug his shoulders and go, I don't know. Work wisely, 
because life's not certain. Enjoy it while you have it because death is. And I guess trust God. This is largely much of the place that our lives live within is kind of this shrugging, enjoy it while you have it, work wisely as best as you can. But most of us find this to be maybe a better way to live, but an unsatisfactory one. Because we find ourselves powerless against time, chance, and death. It's worth remembering this morning that we hold a library of scriptures that we believe is God speaking to us. And Ecclesiastes is one voice in a choir. And we need to zoom out for a second to find that that Ecclesiastes is not the only book in the Bible that wrestles with the dark presence of time, chance, and death within this world. But even alongside and in the same time as the uh, book of Ecclesiastes was written, we find a source for our trust in the midst of this world, a source that is located in a future act of God when God is going to do something about death and his henchmen. Isaiah 25 He says, he being God will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people, that is the sin of his people, the foolishness of his people, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. That's 25 verse eight. I love 29, uh, 25 verse nine continues saying, we waited for him, we waited for him. Let us be glad he's done it. For God's people, we root Uh, they, in this time, they rooted themselves in a present trust of God in the midst of all of the uncertainty of this life as they wait for some future day when God would do something about death and his henchmen. When God would wipe away the tears that chaos has brought. When he would clean away all that had been done within this world. When death would be undone. And as Emma's ripped up Jesus' storybook Bible puts it, when everything sad would become untrue. When God would deal with death, henchmen, and his third partner that Isaiah sets before us is the reproach or the sin of humanity. That this is what we need God to deal with in this world. So the deconstructor gives us trust. Isaiah comes along and tells us what it is. Some future act of God that he's going to do. And the hinge that the library turns upon is when we move the story of the Bible into the story of the New Testament. We're different than Ecclesiastes. The New Testament and the arrival of Jesus on the scene chronicles when God's awaited work to do something about time, chance, death, and sin actually begins to kick off. And as we're going to celebrate with Palm Sunday next week, like those classic classic Western movies, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, it's the righteous stranger who's come to do something about the corrupt sheriff. But as the story progresses and we move into Good Friday, the story seems to end tragically, doesn't it? As Jesus dies on a cross, we've, death won again. Chance claims someone else. The timer ran out on someone else. Death has claimed another victim and all those promises of God to swallow death itself got swallowed. And so just sitting within the feeling of what's called Holy Saturday in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday is that, how do we live now? But with the dawn of Easter Sunday, the twist ending that we all love because we sing about it every single week is three days later that Jesus resurrected to life. He defeated death and his henchmen And I just love it. 40 days later, when the Holy Spirit was sent out on the church, the Apostle Peter gives up and gives the first Christian sermon. 
and he starts talking about what has now been done through Jesus Christ, he gets up in Acts chapter two and he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, time and chance held no strength against him. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the bonds of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And now it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The great twist of Easter Sunday, which I cannot wait for, is that God used time, chance, death, and sin against themselves to defeat themselves. It's like a sweet move of jujitsu. You're using the enemy's strength against them is what has been enacted through the resurrection of Jesus. Is it jujitsu? Is that the right one? Maybe not. Someone will come tell me I'm wrong later. What happened with Good Friday is chance thought that it had won. Time thought it had caught up. Death thought it had claimed. Sin thought that it had defeated him. But when Easter Sunday kicks off, Jesus shows himself as sovereign over chance, as eternal over time, as resurrected over death, and as holy over sin. He is your hero, my hero who has defeated them all. And for us who live on the other side of this, we have such a better preacher than Ecclesiastes because we don't just find good advice, we get good news. For those who come to trust in Jesus, time, chance, death, and sin are not able to hold you either. My favorite chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, he's actually talking about our resurrection in the future to come. He says, when mortal flesh puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Isaiah, remember, 25. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, you now be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I've been waiting for this, the whole series What has been the 38 times that the deconstructor has said over and over again that all is under the sun? It is all vain. It is all vanity. It is all smoke and mirrors. And the apostle Paul picks up deconstructor's words here and he takes us all the way home by saying, for those who work within the Lord, those who find a life and existence within the resurrection, Ecclesiastes flips in on itself that your work is not in vain. It is not smoke and mirrors, but it has substance. Your life now is satisfying. Your life now is significant. Your life now is lasting. Receive this, this trust of God. I'm giving my whole self over to your life, your resurrection for you and me that death has been defeated and will eternally, eventually be finally swallowed up. And so our future hope moves beyond the silly things of this world, the smoke and mirrors to that which is truly lasting. And so our lives in the meantime, like the deconstructor advised us today, we can enjoy our existence, 
not just because death is certain, but we can enjoy our existence as victorious sons and daughters of the living God. We can work wisely in our work of the Lord, knowing that in him our work is not smoke and mirrors, and we can trust in Jesus, because for those who come to him, for those who, true, who do find themselves in the hand of God, it is now life that is certain and death that is not. Let's pray.